Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast, where our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Monica Wesley, the founder of the Sugar Science and your host for today's podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dan Ababayu. He is a postdoctoral fellow at UVA, University of Virginia, in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. We're very excited to talk to him about his work in fibrosis and how there are some crossovers in that field to type 1 diabetes, particularly in the um, Isla transplant space. So welcome, Dan. Thanks for um, meeting with us. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, great. Um, I just wanted to ask you, can you talk to us about how you became scientifically interested in fibrosis and, and you know, uh, sort of as a, as a reach to type 1, maybe? Yeah, sure. My, uh, my science background started when I was an undergrad doing research, trying to develop uh, biomaterials for tissue engineering. Um, and one of the major obstacles for biomaterial design is overcoming fibrotic encapsulation or fibrosis. And so that was my first early uh, interaction with it. It was oftentimes just something to be avoided and was, uh, in my mind as a young undergrad, was just characterized as a bunch of collagen around your implant. Um, but I decided to try and uh, pursue a postdoctoral training where I got to try and understand the mechanisms behind fibrosis. And that's what I've been doing for my postdoc now. And what I've, been, what I've started to see and appreciate is that fibrosis emerges across multiple diseases and, and is oftentimes one of the key obstacles in developing better therapies. And so it seems to be kind of at the nexus of a lot of different contexts and has given me, in all honesty, has given me the opportunity to try and um, learn about new opportunities for exploration like type 1 diabetes as I think about my uh, future career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. It's it. We're very, um, uh, you know, we're very interested in talking to people that come to diabetes or come at it with uh, fresh impressions, and you certainly have that. So that'll um, this is going to be interesting. So, what are your thoughts about the work currently being done in your field that you know sort of impact the T1D world, maybe in the islet implant world? Yeah, so coming from a both a biomaterials, regenerative medicine, as well as an immunology background, uh, I'm able to see what's coming out of those different areas and see the exciting work that's emerging. Um, in particular, in biomaterials and in regenerative medicine, um, they're doing some really great work where these polymer hydrogel systems are being developed to help deliver um, islets, to help try and avoid fibrosis, to promote tissue integration, as well as to try and uh, promote tolerance. Um, there's specifically been some really cool uh, work done at, at Phelps's lab at the University of Florida where they've been doing that. Um, there have been other groups that have been developing nanoparticles uh, to help deliver uh, islet cells that try and focus particularly on controlling immune tolerance, which is oftentimes one of the key issues when islet cells are, uh, are, are delivered clinically. Um, and interestingly, this just this week, just yesterday, there was a new paper out of Nature uh, where they tried to use, uh, they tried to develop organoids that were entirely new islets uh, for implantation and saw really fascinating responses where they saw great uh, insulin secretion as well as regulation of blood glucose levels. And so I think both with immunology and regenerative medicine, there's some really great work coming out of there. Yeah, I saw that paper and it was exciting too. It was uh, Elliot Botvinnik actually cited it on Google Scholar and I sort of I follow him because he's a great 
He's a great um, read on the bioengineering world in this space. So yeah, that's a, good, a neat paper. Um, let me see, can you share um, some exciting new work that you're doing in your lab? Yeah, so our group is focused on uh, fibrosis and fibroblast mechanotransduction, how fibroblasts uh, experience changes in forces as well as how they uh, produce those forces themselves. And so what I've been trying to do is to try and thread a needle with fibrosis and inflammation given my immunology background. Um, for most fibrotic diseases or uh, fibrotic disorders, oftentimes what happens is that there's a noted inflammation that happens at the beginning of the disease and then there's um, there's fibrosis or poor mechanotransduction that happens afterwards, but we don't really know how the two are connected. Uh, that's yeah. been oftentimes a really uh, major obstacle in various forms of fibrosis. And mm -hmm. so what I'm trying to do is try, trying to figure out how does inflammation inform uh, uh, scar producing fibroblasts. We know that inflammation occurs, but it's not the immune cells that are laying down all this collagen to form the scar in fibrosis. And so what I'm trying to see is how do they communicate? How does the immune system, the immune system and inflammation communicate with fibroblasts? And what I've been able to appreciate and see is that there's uh, a lot of work recently has shown that fibroblasts have uh, a lot of, they have several subpopulations of fibroblasts that, uh, that are present normally. And that mm -hmm. what I've seen is that when you alter that microenvironment to become really inflammatory, you see a really distinct change in those cell subpopulations. And, in particular, I've identified that there's an inflammatory fibroblast subpopulation that emerges that's uniquely hmm. fibrotic. Um, and a lot of other folks have uh, zeroed in on this fibrotic uh, subpopulation fibroblast and that have tried to identify markers. But what we've, what we've seen in our group is that it's also a really uniquely inflammatory uh, hmm. subpopulation. And so I'm trying to use this as I uh, look forward to launching my own research lab uh, what we what we want to try and look at is how do uh, what I want to try and look at is how do these how do these inflammatory fibroblasts emerge in disease and how can we control them um, to avoid fibrosis and that and hopefully uh, that might be of of interest to the type one diabetes world. Oh yeah, I think so. I, I'm I'm really curious. Do you see or have you any um, you know um, experience seeing the inflammatory subpopulation of fibroblasts that that are um you know found in a wound for instance are they a different subpopulation than those that are found like in the foreign body response in re, you know in response to say an islet implant uh, that's a great question um i think what's going to happen is that i think that inflammatory fibroblast subpopulation will exist across these different contexts but there's going to be unique markers to identify them Mm -hmm. um, I first, uh, the, in the work that I've been doing, I've been using lung fibroblasts and they have a really unique, uh, uh, molecular signature where they lack, uh, where they, where they lack one specific marker that's usually considered a pan fibroblast marker. Um, but then when you switch over to dermal fibroblasts, they're going to have different molecular signatures. And so there's, you know, there's, uh, Oftentimes fibroblast biologists will say a fibroblast is not a fibroblast is not a fibroblast, meaning there's, they're so different from different tissue contexts. And so I think what's going to be really important for uh, either for wound healing or for um, islet cell therapies would be to identify 
the, uh, the unique markers for these inflammatory fibroblasts mm -hmm. and figure out ways to target them selectively. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, that they, that they really are responsive to their environment and that they actually can change um, so differently and dramatically under different conditions. As a cell biologist, I think that's fascinating anyways. Yeah, no, um, I, I totally agree. It's cool. So what do you think about scaling, you know, your findings or just sort of the current technology that is existing with the fibroblasts like you? And, and by scaling, I mean like, okay, you have these discoveries that they are able to express, you know, different proteins, maybe on their surface. What's the next step? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, you know, in, in the world of personalized medicine, sometimes uh, it, it's it's important to recognize that this degree of heterogeneity fibroblasts that we see emerge um, in uh, in a dish or in a mouse might not be the same across all people. And so I think mm -hmm. it's going to be important that if the if the if this is a if, this, if there's a therapy here that's worth mining out and trying to uh, leverage for clinical use, I think it's going to be important to try and realize that that there's heterogeneity among people, not just among cells. And so yeah. I think that's going to be, that, that's going to be really important. Um, a lot of the current technologies that are being worked on, at least in the biomaterials world, one of the major obstacles for scaling is oftentimes what fabrication method they use to create these biomaterials and is it scalable to a larger degree. And so I think you know, a lot of times it's important to try and realize that we need to use fabrication methods that are easily reproducible, available off the shelf, um, and would be easy to, to move from, uh, from the bench top to, to, to a company to try and scale it. What kind of, just sort of right in that, uh, right from that, what kind of country, company or industry do you think would be most interested in this research? Um, the unique thing about this is that I think uh, that either pharma or biotech companies uh, would be able to appreciate this kind of these kind of therapies and be able and be willing to to chime in. I mean, I think a lot of times a group a uh, company like Johnson Johnson has these ha they will oftentimes work with these smaller biotech companies to try and leverage and license out mm -hmm. um, uh, these therapies. And so I think you know, I think there's an opportunity for a lot of industry partners to, uh, to try and enter into this space and to try and use the research that's been going, that's going on currently within universities and uh, help scale them up. Yeah, I've been following a company called Pliant, or Pliant. They do a lot of um, work in fibrosis, lung fibrosis, and um, we are reaching out to them to see if they might have some comments on how what they're working on, you know, might be applicable to fibrosis with, that happens with the eyelid implant. Uh, or at least keeping it at bay for a, a while longer so that the implant can survive in the body or in situ for a, a while longer. Um, what do you think, uh, what do you think the challenges are just sort of, you know, coming from your fibrosis world, you know, uh, from medical school, what challenges do you think have to be overcome to expedite research in type one? You know, I think one of the, one of the key challenges is trying to identify ways, uh, to promote tolerance of these new implanted eyelids. Um, and I think that because type one diabetes is an autoimmune disease, focusing on the immune system is, uh, is of paramount importance. But what's also interesting is that in, uh, in the need to promote tolerance, like I was describing earlier, the immune system is also connected 
to this fibrotic response. And so mm -hmm. it's going to be it's going to be really key to try and to to really hone in on modulating the immune system to promote tolerance while also promoting a reparative uh, response from fibroblasts and other stromal cells and not fibrosis. That's interesting. You're, I mean, we've done uh, published 12 podcasts so far, and almost every scientist has said that there's going to be a multifactorial, um, you know, uh, approach that will really, really make things happen. Um, I would say, okay, so in terms of our p current pandemic, the COVID constraints, what do you think is, uh, this is sort of like, you know, shifting gears for a minute, but what do you think that, um, how do you think that young researchers should approach the, the challenges that the pandemic is um, giving them right now? I mean, you're not in your lab, are you? Are you back there yet? No, I've been working, uh, working from home still. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, it's certainly been challenging, but I think, you know, the, given the current limitations, one thing at least that I've appreciated that's helped me to try and address or to try and move forward with some of my work is there is a, uh, it's important to try and leverage the large amount of publicly available data sets that we have. Mm -hmm. uh, we live in the age of single cell, uh, single cell genomics and single cell approaches. And so there's been a lot of work trying to uh, address the heterogeneity that I mentioned earlier, as well as what's going on at the cellular level um, at the single cell level in disease. And I think, you know, if we have specific questions of what cell populations are emerging or what molecular signatures uh, emerge in disease or in response to, uh, in response to islet cell transplantation, I think, you know, these, these large data sets give us the opportunity to try and hone in uh, from home what's happening and see what others have done and maybe ask questions that they, they didn't have with their data sets. When you're looking at these data sets, are there any particular, um, you know, programs you use to kind of sift through them or is it just sort of, you know, going through? Um, yeah, so I'll use, I'll use R, I'll use R to go through them. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, I've, uh, in doing some single cell RNA-seq work on my own, I've learned how to, uh, I've learned how to use, I've learned how to look at my own data sets as well as others and sit them and compare them side by side. And so there's, one of the main one of the main approaches to looking at single cell RNA seq data is the Surat method S E U R A T and um, that that group out of NYU has made their uh, made their toolkit widely available and easy to use even for some, even for someone who's new to the, this arena like myself yeah. um, and to try and look at data sets that either you produce or others have. That's great advice, especially for some of the younger scientists. And thank you for sharing that because I think. You know, people are looking for ways to get creative, and it, maybe this is the time to sort of sit with the data, you know, yeah. and then before you go back in and do the active research. Um, is uh, there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, you know, I just think there's a lot to be excited about coming down the pipeline with all these new single cell approaches and um, new organoids that can that are serving as these engineered islet cells, and so I think. I think there's a lot to be excited about, and um, and yeah, uh, I think fibro I think fibrosis could be uh, could be an important avenue to look at in context of all of this for type one diabetes. I totally agree, and we are that's our first off the record in September. Will be our our exclusive salon will be scientists such as yourself discussing how to mitigate fibrosis and islet implants. And thank you so much for talking with us today. It was a total treat. 
And um, we wish you all the best and we'll be in touch. Sounds good. Thank you again for having me.